Good morning. If you would, take your bulletin this morning and look at the back, or if you'd like, you can turn to Psalm 136, and you can read the three verses that we have there this morning as we open. Psalm 136, 1 through 3, it's there on the back of your bulletin. You can view it there in your Bible. Either way, but we'll open this morning with uh, reading this text together, and then our choir will sing for us this morning. Look at Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3. And we can read all three verses out loud together. You ready? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endureth forever. And we are thankful for the Lord's mercy, His loving kindness. And we're thankful for that this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful and grateful this morning. We come to you on a week in which we choose to celebrate giving thanks and in which we try to uh, remind ourselves and, and those that we love and our family uh, how we should be grateful. And as Christians this morning, we know that that is not just the celebration of a holiday, but that it's our responsibility that you've given to us. It should be the proper response of our hearts toward your work in our lives. And so this morning as we come, not just because of the week or because of the holiday, but because of our relationship with you, because of how you have given yourself to us, how you have extended yourself and you have revealed yourself in your word. And we can praise you because you are the God of gods, because you are the Lord of lords and because your mercy, your long suffering love has been displayed to us. And so we are grateful this morning, we are thankful for that love and for your mercy, and we praise you for it today. May that be the tune or the theme of our hearts as we sing, as we pray, even the requests that we bring before you, may we do it with gratitude, uh, with expectation that you hear us, but that you also handle us in the best and uh, most gracious way possible, that you work all things so that we can be more like you. And so we pray this morning that you would teach us, that you would guide us, uh, that you would lift up our hearts, that your spirit would fill us in an evident way as we listen to your word and seek to grow by it. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. turn to the book of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 this morning and we'll read there in just a moment as you find your place. You can also have your bulletin and lesson out for this morning and uh, take uh, note of a few things that are coming up. Matthew chapter 12 in your Bible. If you would also take note in your bulletin several things there that are coming up these next few weeks and several uh, I've asked about Uh, November 22nd, that's this Tuesday evening, is our Thanksgiving service, and we have a dessert fellowship that follows, and then notice the time is a little different, it's at 6.30 on Tuesday evening, that's to give us a little bit of extra time, and so uh, some of you may need to adjust, I know we have some people that will come straight from work, and that would be fine, you say, I don't have time to make a dessert between work and coming, you can pick up Krispy Kreme at the gas station if you want to, and bring it. 
But you notice there it says uh, each family should bring a dessert. We're asking each family to bring a dessert with a little bit to share. And if you can help, there's a little bit of setup and cleanup uh, for that before and after. And you can see I almost said Dan Sumter. It's not Dan and Sonia Sumter. It's Dan and Sonia Hoffman. You can uh, see either one of them to let them know. And they'll let you know kind of uh, where and how uh, to be a help for that. But that's coming up this Tuesday evening. Now with that, there's no midweek service on Wednesday night. So uh, don't come Wednesday at 7. Um, and I told the Wednesday evening group that was here last week, if you do, that's fine. You can take part in the Spanish service with their pie and praise fellowship. And so uh, either one, but if you want to come to the English-speaking one, that'll be Tuesday evening at 6.30 uh, on Tuesday night. Then several have asked about our Christmas missions uh, offering and projects for this year, and we want to start putting that out for the next month or so, the month of December. Uh, each year we pick a missions project or missions ministry, sometimes uh, abroad, sometimes split between a need here at the church and then also uh, worldwide missions. And you see there this year we have two different things that we're focusing on in the month of December and contributing to two different needs. Uh, the first one there is the Stephen Truell family. Uh, Stephen Truell, he was not one of our supported missionaries yet. Uh, he was planning on, their family was going to come the next time they were back in the States uh, next year sometime. And we were hoping to be able to partner with them, support them. Uh, but a good family has been ministering in the Middle East for about 10 years or so, a little bit more than 10 years in different countries, most recently serving by training church planters in Iraq, in Baghdad in particular. And uh, we've mentioned the last few weeks that Stephen was uh, tragically killed, lost his life there <clears throat> in Iraq. We've been praying for his wife and their four kids. They have three daughters, I believe 17, 15, and 11, I believe are the ages, and then they have a, a toddler age son <clears throat> as well and uh, they are safe back in the states and we're thankful for that uh, but we want to do something to help their family a number of churches from around the country are uh, doing things to help support them there was of course unexpected costs needing to leave almost overnight and um, then uh, funeral costs and then of course just the transition unexpected loss and so we want to help this family uh, though you haven't met, we have not met them personally yet here, uh, we want to help them uh, and kind of rally around them as they've ministered for the gospel. And then you see David Coltrane, our missionary, longtime missionary in the Philippines, and they've been ministering there for a number of years and started a building project. They, starting a, they started a building project, brought, bought property and started a project in December of 2019. Let that sink in as to when that was a little bit. Different countries handled things differently as COVID began, but almost everything came to a screeching halt in the Philippines for uh, even longer than it did here. And so they had delay after delay. They have unexpected costs like anything in the last few years. Building costs have gone up. And so uh, they are trying to finish this building project for their church and some things that were unexpected that came up. And so we want to do some things to try to help uh, toward that cause as well. And all you have to do is just write Christmas missions on your envelope. Uh, you can drop it in the offering box. It's in the foyer or designate online. If you go under missions and special, you can just write in Christmas missions as well. And you can uh, take part in either one of those Christmas missions offerings. Then you see there a little note at the bottom about if you shop on Amazon, we kind of put this out about once a year, really right around this time, a way that you can help the church and the school ministry both as a nonprofit. But if you shop on Amazon in their Black Friday sales, and that's the Black Friday that I like where I can do it from the couch 
or the recliner. Uh, but uh, if you go to just smile.amazon.com, or I think you can do it also from the app if you register there, and you can actually choose uh, our church and school to designate, and uh, they will actually donate a percentage of anything that you purchase uh, through Amazon. They do it all year long, but it's just a good time to remind, and then um, they contribute that toward the church as a nonprofit. So with Black Friday coming up, just a good time to remind you of those things as well. All right, if you would, look at Matthew chapter 12 this morning. We're going to read our text, and then Veronica will sing one final song. Matthew chapter 12, and if you would, look at verse number 22. Matthew 12, verse number 22. And uh, I'll be honest with you this morning. I bring this up from time to time and say this is why I think that it's important that we preach and teach just verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, Because, to be honest, not discounting this passage, but this is not the type of passage that I just get up in the morning and think, you know, I really want an encouraging way to start my day. I'm going to read Matthew 12, verse 22 through 45, and be encouraged by it. It's a great devotional, you know, just a shot in the arm. It's not one of those passages. But the Bible teaches us that all Scripture is given to teach us, and it is profitable for us. And so when we make ourselves walk through this and learn from it, and we're asking the Lord to do that this morning, uh, because it will leave us uncomfortable at times, God's Word will. And this is one of those passages, and I want us to look together at it. Don't get lost in it, but we're going to walk through it just verse by verse and uh, answer a number of things. In fact, <clears throat> I was thinking, well, this is, there's so much here. We're just going to take oh, five or ten verses today, and then we'll come right back to it next week. And then I remembered, I'm not speaking next week. Uh, Scott and Julie Job are going to be with us uh, next Sunday morning. Julie Tigner, to most of you. Uh, and uh, Scott and Julie are going to be planning a church in the Fuvana area. And so he's going to be with us next Sunday morning preaching for us. And, uh, well, really I should say Julie's going to be playing the piano as well. Some of you that have been here for many years are excited about her coming back. And so I thought... You know, I don't want to take a gap week in between. We're going to, so we're going to try to tackle verse 22 down through verse 45 all in one set. But we're going to hustle to do so this morning. So if you would, look there. Verse 22. It says, Then was brought unto him, brought to Jesus, one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb, or the mute, both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, and Here's a long discourse. How would you like to be in the presence of Jesus and think a thought? And Jesus preaches a sermon to you because of what you thought. Um, wouldn't that be interesting this morning? If we could just preach a sermon based on our thoughts. Notice what he says. And he said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore... They shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. 
Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. And he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever shall speak it, speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart, of the heart, bringeth forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words shalt thou be justified, thou shalt be justified, by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign, meaning a miracle, from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with, the, with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came to the uttermost parts of the earth from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. And then he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty and swept and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Lord, this is a, uh, a hefty text this morning, one in which um, it is easy for us to see others. But this morning we ask first that you, by your Spirit, would reveal ourselves, that you would show us our own heart. We look often and point fingers when we see the Bible talk about evil and demons and even Pharisees. And yet, your Holy Spirit is often speaking to us. And so we ask this morning that you would help us to handle your word with wisdom and give it to us. May your Spirit speak in us. Um, do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do for us what we cannot do. Teach us what we don't know and make us what we are not yet. We ask for your forgiveness and we repent of our sin this morning. We ask you to clear it from our minds and from our hearts. 
to find true forgiveness in you and that you would guide and direct us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Words of songs like that are deep and courageous truth, aren't they? Not, not easy truth. Because sometimes it is easier to believe in God than it is to believe God, isn't it? It is for me, maybe not for you. But as a Christian, I don't often find that my struggle is to believe in God. I'm glad that God by His Spirit has convicted me of who He is and He's worked in my heart and He has convinced me of Himself and who He is. That is not always my struggle each morning that I believe in God. But my struggle many mornings is to believe God and that He is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He is going to do. And when even my heart, as the song says, is breaking and life is fragile and shattered to trust the Lord's word. That's a good message and song this morning. If you look at Matthew 12 again, and I warned you before we read it. I don't always do that, but I warned you before we read it. This is a hefty passage, is it not? And um, I think most glaringly, and we'll just say it up front, we're going to get to it today. We're actually also going to get to it a little bit tonight it's interesting, uh, last Sunday night we started to take some questions. For the next few weeks we're going to have some sessions on Sunday evening, uh, tonight together, and then other uh, nights through the month of December where we're going to be uh, split up into a couple groups, two groups, maybe three some nights, depending on offering different topics. And But one of the things we did is we, we, we took some questions and we said, do you have questions, particularly about something spiritual and that kind of thing, and, and is it something we could address in one of these sessions or seminars before we get back to our smaller adult classes. And so there's a number of things and topics that we're going to address. But one of the things that was asked um, multiple times, three or four different cards put something in this regard, in a way, asking about what we find in this passage that many people call the unforgivable sin. What exactly is it? How do I know if someone has committed that? How do I know if I have? And how do I uh, know uh, at what point in my life, and it's just something that comes up, and immediately, glaringly, that's what we see in this passage, that there is this unpardonable sin. But we have to take it in its context in which actually Jesus is speaking and preaching the gospel. If you would, you have your notes, you can follow along there, and you see your points. When we first read this passage, this may not be what we immediately think. Who is the Savior? Who needs to be saved? Who can be saved? Salvation. And we talk about being saved. And again, we as church people sometimes throw that word out there like everybody just knows what we're talking about. We mean from that salvation from the wrath of God directed toward our sinful nature and our sins, the punishment, the 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 penalty for our sins, salvation from God's wrath toward that. That's what we mean when it means to be saved or salvation. 
And Jesus here speaks in verses 20 through verse 45, though we may not see it obviously right away, he's giving the gospel in a way. So I want to ask you this morning, how, is, how important is salvation to you? The truth is, it's probably far more important to Jesus as our Savior, because you see him talk about it so often. It was not something that when he saved someone, he was done with the work in their life, but rather the gospel should continue to work in our lives each and every day. In Jesus' day, I want you to think about the setting this morning. We don't have time to do a huge background setting. We've been walking our way through Matthew. We kind of know that Matthew has presented Jesus as as the king, the true king of Israel, but more than that, the king of the world, the son of God, the Messiah that has come. He has shown him in his first birth and coming, and how he defeated Satan on his own, and how he then was baptized and began his ministry. He gives us three chapters of teaching, and you have the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. And then Matthew presents and says he doesn't just speak with authority, he displays authority. Chapters 8 and 9, he gives us those nine or ten miracles that he just won right after the other, and saying not only does he speak with authority, he has the authority to do these things. Then in chapter 10, there's this presentation that is kind of given of Jesus sending out his disciples, calling them to serve with him and to preach him and to declare the gospel, calling them to choose and follow him. And then in chapters 11 and 12, the last few weeks, we've had responses and reactions to Jesus. And they're not what we expect, were they? Technically, we know from reading the scripture what's going to happen, but it's not what we would assume. Think about it. Jesus comes preaching to multitudes, speaking the gospel and telling them about this great kingdom of God that is so different than any kingdom that mankind has ever had on the face of the earth, a real kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and he's preaching about it. Then he does miracle after miracle. He heals, he changes people's lives, multitudes of people, and not just Jewish people. But who does he go to? He goes to the downcast. He goes to the people that are trodden and looked over. Peter's mother-in-law, an elderly woman, the Roman centurion's servant. He, he said he brings all people into this family, this new kingdom of God. And isn't this a joyous message that Jesus has brought? And the responses in chapter 11, 12, what are they? Doubt, apathy, disinterest, and ultimately rejection. Why? In Jesus' day, the great expectation for salvation was that a great prophet, a deliverer, a savior, a Messiah would come. And the Jewish people thought that there was, there's many prophecies about this one that would come, but there's many misconceptions about him as well. John the Baptist comes on the scene before Jesus and thousands begin to follow him into the wilderness and they listen to him. He denounces false righteousness and formal religion that Jewish leadership has set up and the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day. And people are shocked because John, I don't think we, we think of baptism as fairly normal. People are shocked because John the Baptist, that's why he got that name, it's so significant. He's baptizing Jewish people. Why is that so significant? That wasn't something that was done. In fact, who that was done to was who the Jewish people would call pagans, people from outside of the family or nation of Israel, the nation of God as they 
viewed it. You think about different people that would come in and before they could be accepted into the Jewish faith or faith of Jehovah, the Jewish people, the leaders would baptize them to show you kind of be cleansed from all of your old pagan sin. And now all of a sudden, John the Baptist is, John the Baptist is baptizing Jewish Israelites. Why? Because he's come speaking to them saying, repent, God's kingdom is at hand. It's like John the Baptist is calling them out of false idolatry and fake man-made religion, saying, truly repent and come to God. Why is it like that? Because exactly what he was doing. And then Jesus comes, and his days and his weeks of public teaching are mixed with miracles and healings, and he's drawing the attention of country folks from Galilee, city theologians from Jerusalem. And by this point, Jesus' ministry the people had started to hope for and expect certain things of Jesus. You even see a hint of it in uh, chapter 12, verse 23. All the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? They're starting to pick up on it. This very well could be the Messiah. Now we think he has literally healed people, made people that can't walk. He, he's brought people literally out of doldrums of horrific physical infirmities. We think that's enough. Obviously, he's the Messiah. But what were they waiting for? They said this man is going to be the Messiah if he kicks out foreign Roman troops, if he restores economic prosperity, if he disperses food and wealth freely, reestablishes Jewish government and monarchy, and makes Israel great again. That's what they were expecting. But it's not what they got. And so they rejected him. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, didn't fit what they wanted. Didn't do what they thought they needed. The assumption was that the Messiah would come and do big corporate national acts with the assumption that they were okay. That's what they felt like. They had this assumption that Israelites, everything was fine with them. And when the Messiah would come, he would solve their problems. Not the problems of sin, but the problems of soldiers. Not the problem of evil in their heart, but the problem of their economy. That's what they longed for. See, what they didn't get and understand was that their biggest problem was not out there. That's what they wanted Jesus to fix. But Jesus came with a much more introspective view, and he came with a much more accurate view of what their real problem was. Their problem was not out there. Their problem was in here. And Jesus says, I'm going to save you, not from things and economy and people and Romans. I'm going to save you from God himself. Because right now in your sin, you are not okay. You are not one with God. Your heart, he says to the Pharisees, is far from him. And you're staring down judgment and you don't even realize it. And Jesus comes with this message to them and it kind of comes to a head in Matthew 12. Jesus has been teaching about God's true kingdom for some time, and he's been working these miracles, and he's pointing to who he is. But now this confrontation with the Pharisees has started to develop. At the beginning of chapter 12, last week we saw Jesus directly undermines, he ignores their assumed authority, specifically in regard to their Sabbath day customs. And think about it, it's like he hurt their feelings. And remember, it, he, Jesus comes and he and his Disciples, they're picking grain, they're eating, which was not a command of God that they could not do on the Sabbath. It was a rule of man. Remember we, we spent three or four minutes last week listing all those absurd rules 
24 chapters in one second section of the Talmud of man-made rules about the Sabbath, ignorant stuff that they had made. But they were so proud that they had established all these extra things and all these extra rules. It's like God gave us his law and we made it 24 times better. That's the way the Pharisees viewed it. And then they bring him this man. They bring him this man and, and with a withered hand, they use this man's infirmity to try to trap Jesus. And they're like, oh, go ahead and heal him. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you don't understand what the Sabbath is. It's not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Of course I'll heal him. It is good to do good on God's day. And he heals him. And he undermines their authority. He embarrasses them in front of others. And what was their response? Verse 14 tells us that they sought to destroy him. Like they didn't take counsel, what should we do or how should we react? From that day forward, they were trying to kill Jesus. And then you have in verse 22 in our passage, then was brought to him. And we're then there. It doesn't give us a specific timeline. It seems it's either on the same Sabbath day or very near to it in succession. Then was brought to him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. He healed him insomuch that the blind dumb, the mute man, he spoke and he saw. Jesus heals him, works in his life and in his heart. And the people's response is, this just might be the Messiah. And then look, the, the teachers of Scripture, what do they do? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, heard what? Heard that the people thought he might be the Messiah. Their response then was to tell the people, this fellow, this man, is not casting out devils except by the power of the devil himself. They accuse Jesus of evil. They're desperate to cling to their authority. They're desperate to cling to their own rules and traditions, so desperate that they completely miss the entire fulfillment of Scripture happening right before their eyes, so caught up in their own evil. And then notice, and Jesus knew their thoughts. So I want us to think about this this morning as we walk through the rest of the passage. Jesus knowing how they're thinking about him. What does he do and what does he say? Notice, number one, he speaks, on who, he speaks to who is the Savior. Notice verse 25, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? So they accuse him of being evil because of the darkness of their own minds and their rejection of God's work and his spirit in their heart. And there's moments in Jesus' ministry where, he, yes, he's declared himself in a more outright way. But now, after this context of casting out a demon, he literally gives a man victory from evil. And then Jesus just uses logic. They say he can only cast out this demon because he is a demon himself. And Jesus sort of looks at, I, Jesus does have this element, I will not call it snarkiness, but with the Pharisees, he has an element of sar, humorous sarcasm, quite often that he displays. And he says, now wait a second, if, if a nation splits its army in half and it divides itself, which one loses? <laughs> the one that stays unified or the one that divides? If a house or a family gets at odds or an argument, there's no more family. It's divided. It doesn't stand. They end up alone and desolate. If I am a devil casting out a devil, what sense does that make? 
Jesus says to them. In fact, he goes further and he uses their words for his own glory. In verse 27, he says, If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, he almost, again, here's a little bit of that sarcasm. He says, how do your children? Now, he doesn't mean they're literal, like, five-year-old toddler children are running around casting out devils. He's saying, your disciples, your followers, you scholarly people of Israel, how are you? Because they would do these exorcisms, and they would do, use, like, herbs and weird stuff and almost kind of try to knock the person out and do all these different things. You can read historically. They were not very effective. One historian called the Pharisees' attempts at exorcisms harmless is how it was described. And so Jesus says, well, if I'm casting them out by devils, what are you trying to cast them out by? But then he flips it. Notice what he says in verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, you know, the enemy of Satan, then the kingdom of God, certainly, it's come before you. Jesus kind of flips their argument on its head. He says, why would the devil ever cast out another devil? Who would cast out devils? <laughs> God would. And so he says, that, that's exactly who I am. I am the Savior. And notice he goes further, and he makes this declaration of power. Verse 29, Or how else can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? I love this picture. You kind of get this picture of the devil, and he has power over certain things in this earth. Never power over divine power, but he definitely obviously has influence in Jesus' world and in our world today. He has an influence. But notice the way that Jesus describes it. He doesn't describe his warfare with Satan as some like valiant, movie-worthy, just battling back and forth. Jesus wins a battle, then Satan wins a battle. He doesn't describe it that way. He says a strong man, meaning a, a, a warrior, a great man, has a house full of treasure. How are you going to take that treasure? He says, you'd have to go in, tie up that man. Then you could take whatever you want. What is Jesus saying? He says, I'm stronger than Satan. I'm greater than evil. I am far more powerful than anything that is sinister in this world. If I want something in this world, I can walk in, bind the devil, and take it for myself. You say, well, what is Jesus taking from Satan? Watch, me and you. That's the glorious picture of the gospel that he's giving. He says, look, Satan had you bound and captive. I then bind Satan and take you. He says, I love the word he uses. He says, spoil. I'm going to steal you away from evil and sin and make you my own. Jesus is declaring here, not in some nasty, vehement way. He is saying, I'm the Savior. Don't you see that I'm the Messiah? And he does it by displaying, I can cast out a demon-possessed man. Why can I do that? Why can I cast out this demon? Because I'm in charge of all. Because I am God. And then he looks, and he looks to these Pharisees. He says, your thoughts and your minds, they're confused about me. And he says, that is a really, really big deal. Don't miss that. Look at what he says in verse 30. Or verse, excuse me, verse 29. and 30, Yeah, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So he gives this example of a nation divided, a house divided. He, he's talking about binding the strong man, and he says, and you're not seeing me properly, and that's a really big deal. It leads us to number two, who needs to be saved? 
Notice in verse 30 what he says. If you are not with me, you are against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now this is not some sort of weird jihadist. We want to kill anyone who is not with Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is drawing a dividing line saying, Pharisees, look, you're missing it. I am the Messiah. I'm the Savior of the world. And you've missed it. And here's why that's a big, here's why that is a big deal. Because you cannot be saved without me. And if you have not come through me, you cannot be saved. Jesus is preaching the gospel. You say, how do you preach the gospel to heretical, pharisaical minds? He does it the same way he preached the gospel to anyone else. You cannot be saved without me. And he says, this is a huge deal. Notice he goes further. And he speaks of this blasphemy. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Verse 32. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. What does he mean? At the beginning of verse 32, he says, the one who speaks against the Son of Man, Jesus himself, the one who speaks against me physically while I'm on this earth, that even that can be forgiven. We're going to talk about it in a moment. Since the mercy that Jesus is showing, mercy to the Pharisees, to the religious people that think they have it all figured out. Jesus is speaking mercy. Why? What does he say? Look, you can speak against me and God will even forgive that. You can want to kill me. You can turn against me, Pharisees, and, and God will even forgive that. If you will submit to his Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost teaches you who I really am. But he says, whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. What, what, what is this? He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In a war between these kingdoms, evil kingdom and God's kingdom, there is no neutral state. You are one or the other. And it's important to view our own lives that way but I also want us to think this morning, it's important to view the lives of everyone else that we know that way as well. Every, all of your children, your spouse, all of your family, all of your friends, everyone that you work with is in one kingdom or the other. And that is so hard to grasp, isn't it? Like, like the, the little lady that lives across the street that's been so kind for all of these years, as long as you have known her, she's in one kingdom or the other. The man that has worked with you for 25 years and you are best friends, and I don't know how often you've had gospel conversations with him, but he is in one kingdom or the other. Your children, no matter their age, no matter what you see in their lives, they are in one kingdom or the other. Jesus says there is no neutral ground here. You don't just... You don't get to land or walk the line on this like a kind of Jesus kind of other things. And ask yourself first, personally this morning, where are you, but then where are those that are around you? Acts 4.12 says there's not salvation by any other. There's no other name whereby you must be saved. John 3.36 says he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not shall not see life. But the wrath of God is on him. Jesus says, this is a big deal. Because I'm the Savior, I can say who needs to be saved. Who needs to be saved? Not just bad people that do 
bad things in view of culture and society. We're all evil, sinful people. We have all rejected in rebellion against the God of the universe. We all need salvation. You say, Pastor, this is Sunday morning. We're all part of the church. We, I get it. You say, well, we've sat here for years and years, and we hear all these sermons, and we know about the Bible. So did the Pharisees. We know Scripture. We know the message. So did the Pharisees, and there were people among them, and they totally missed who Jesus was really supposed to be. And there's always a chance in our midst, and even for Christians in our minds, that we view Jesus the wrong way. There's common questions. We get hung up on this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. What is it? Can it be done today? It simply, I came across one definition and said it well this way. Blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. It's a knowing, enduring opposition to the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Is it still possible? Yes. Obviously. Was it happening in this passage? You know, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them they have committed blasphemy against the Holy Ghost but he warns them against it. Why? What is it? Ultimately, it is rejecting the gospel. It is disobedience of the, to the call of the gospel. When the Holy Spirit moves and works in someone's life and they turn away and reject it, it is turning away. Yet, in a way, here Jesus is speaking merciful words. He's giving a firm warning to the souls of people who consider Jesus their enemy. I want you to see that this morning as Christians. Before I do a side note, sidestep for just a moment, I don't know if it's so as much of a thing. There was a trend when I was in high school and even when, some, when I was in college where people would take videos of themselves and do different things as a joke or a dare, non-religious people that would intentionally say words that they thought meant that they were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Basically say, I reject the Holy Spirit, I reject the gospel, I reject these different things. And said like, well, now I can't be saved, so just leave me alone, you Christian people. And it's interesting, I just think about that for a moment. Blasphemy, true blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is more than a formula of words. It's a disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this morning, if you or your family, someone you know, someone you love... You say, well, they have just ultimately rejected. There is no opportunity. How do you know that? No one knows but the Lord. The Holy Spirit cannot be bound or shut out by someone's hocus-pocus book of spells. Our God is far more powerful than frivolous words. And regardless of what the person that you've given the gospel to has said, God's Spirit can overpower them. If He overpowered your life, he can overpower theirs as well. So notice the structure and the order that Jesus gives here. I, I, I want to note this. So you know, the gospel says, God is holy, you are lost, Jesus alone can save. And to resist this truth calls Jesus, or calls the, the Spirit, God's Spirit a liar. And this cannot be forgiven. Because it makes you stand before God in your own works rather than the works of Christ. And so Jesus doubled down, doubles down on this concept. Look, if you would, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, its fruit corrupt. The tree is known by its fruit. And he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now, Jesus doubles down on this. He says, you can't be kind of for me, kind of against me, partly for, part for. He says, if I have worked in your heart, you are going to submit. You're going to change. The bad fruits of their words 
betrayed the bad fruit of their hearts, that they had rejected Jesus. There was no fruit in them. And notice what Jesus says. He says, you generation of vipers. They had called him evil, and he literally calls them like, uh, in an informal way, the sons of Satan. They were a generation associated with evil. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Jesus knew their hearts and their words, that they rejected him, that they wanted to kill him. They were clinging to their own authority, to their own influence, to their comfortable structure of religious rules that made them feel like they were standing in a right way before God. But what does Jesus say? I know your hearts. He says, now your words are are starting to show what is in your heart. And your actions are starting to display that as well. But ultimately, the real core of these few verses is Jesus saying, I know your heart. And it is not what you've built up in your life, Pharisees, and structured. You may have fooled everyone else. You have not fooled God. And you may say the right things, and you may do the right things, but your words, though they may deceive others, they do not deceive God. They betray you. And Jesus speaks so firmly with them. Notice, he says, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And he is laying it down. Why? Because they needed to be saved. Don't miss the mercy of Jesus in this passage. Jesus, think about this. here's, Here's the progression of this story so far. Jesus does good to a paralyzed man, a man with a paralyzed hand. He heals him. And these men say, we should kill him. Then... Jesus heals a demon-possessed man that can't see and can't speak. And the people around Jesus finally seem to wake up and say, maybe this is the Messiah. And their response is, he is evil. Now, think about this for a moment. He does good, let's kill him. People start to turn to him, he's evil. What is Jesus' response to that? He gives them the gospel. He does not kill them in an instant. He does not declare war. He he doesn't pull out a sword and go samurai on them. Though he could have, should have. He doesn't vaporize them and send them to hell. They threaten his life and they threaten his ministry. They mock him and they totally reject and turn away from him. And his response is to give them a 20-verse discourse about the gospel. Do you see the heart of the Savior? What about the people that we think are just too far gone? Who is it that we haven't given the gospel to? The family member, and it's just convenient, that happens to be Thanksgiving week, the family member that will not speak kindly to you about religious things. The co-worker who wants nothing to do with your testimony. Let me ask you this. Has they threatened to kill you because of what you've done that's good? Have they threatened to destroy everything you're trying to build up in your life, in your family? No. Then you can give them the gospel as well. They they said it amongst themselves. We're going to kill him. He's a demon. They want to kill him. They're fighting away his mission. The very definition of an enemy. It's as if he's thinking in his mind, do good and love your enemies. And his mercy tells them. In his mercy, here's what he says. I'm not a demon. I am the Savior. If you have not been saved by me, you need to be, and you can be. 
Because that's what he finishes with. Notice number three. We'll hurry. Notice verse 38. Who can be saved? Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. I think this is interesting. Because it says, certain of the scribes and Pharisees then ask him a deeper question. And I'm not really sure what this is here. Because it, it, it basically is saying some of them came back and asked him more questions. Now, I don't know if that means that they had bad intention and some of them are trying to get him to kind of walk into a further trap saying, do another miracle. And they're just thinking he's going to sign his own death warrant by this. Or if there were some of the Pharisees that said, you know what he said makes sense. If you just do another miracle, maybe we'll believe. I'm not sure which one it is. I, I tend to lean a little toward the latter. You have examples like Nicodemus who came in the middle of the night because he had questions. He was curious. But for whatever reason, some of them come and say, <clears throat> do another miracle. <clears throat> Jesus says, I'm going to, but not right now and not for you. He goes on and he says, you know, like Jonah spent three nights in a whale's belly in a miracle. He came back. I'm going to spend three days and nights dead in the earth for the sins of all men. But then because I am God and the Messiah, I'm going to rise again. That's going to be your sign. That's going to be your miracle. Because he says, obviously, you have seen demon people healed. You've seen lame people walk. You've seen paralyzed people move. You've seen lepers be made clean. <clears throat> you've seen a woman with an issue of blood for years be healed. You've seen all these things and you haven't turned. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die on your behalf. And then I'm going to get up. And I'm going to live forever on your behalf. Before God in mercy. That will be your ultimate sign. And notice what he says. Who can be saved? I love this. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. There shall no sign be given to it. <clears throat> the sign of Jonah. He tells what that is. The three days, three nights. And then notice in verse 41 how he speaks. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Can you imagine being a Pharisee? The, Jewish, the Jews of all Jews. And Jesus tells you, The wicked, nasty men of Nineveh are going to be able to rise up and condemn you. Because they heard preaching from Jonah. Who was Jonah? A rebellious prophet who, if, if you could argue however you want, he hated the people that God had called him to. He's rebellious and he hates people. And yet a whole group, a whole people group there in Nineveh is radically changed by the message of mercy from a rebellious, hateful preacher and he says, they turned at his preaching and repented. You've had the Son of God and won't turn. And he says, what is Jesus saying? Look, this salvation is for all. For people from Nineveh. Then he goes and he talks about the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south that came to see Solomon. She came from Africa. He said, look, you can be a wicked, pagan, idolatrous people group of Nineveh that murders and pillages and is feared around the world but mercy can save you. Someone from Africa, for, as the queen comes up that's seeking knowledge, she has all the wealth and everything in the world, mercy can save you. He's saying, who can be saved? Anyone can be and he calls them to repentance. But then he finishes, notice what does it mean for those who are not saved. I want to finish with this. Verse 43 through verse 45. This is difficult at first to look at. Because you know he starts with a man that's possessed with a demon. That's what we start with in verse 22. Now notice how he finishes. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit, a demon possessed man. When an unclean spirit is gone out of a man. 
He walketh through dry places. Meaning that literally means waterless. It's kind of an ambiguous way of saying lifeless, a desert place, and he doesn't find life. What, where do demons live, if he's saying this? In people. He says, uh, an unclean spirit leaves a man, goes out trying to find someone else, can't find anywhere else to live, and so what does he do? Can't find another person. He findeth none. Verse 44, then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished, or decorated. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now you may think, when we first read this, you're you're like, is Jesus saying that this man that was demon-possessed is going to be possessed again by more people? I mean, it kind of feels like that's what he's saying. By more demons, it's going to be worse than the first time? God gives this example. And he says, if an unclean spirit leaves a man, but nothing else comes in, there's nothing to stop that evil from overtaking his life again. And it's going to be worse than it was the first time. Now, he's not talking about the man in verse 22. How do we know that? Look at the end of verse 45. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. What is Jesus saying? Here's how he finishes this sermon about the gospel. And there's key there, as you see, where he says he comes back and he finds the house. He gives this idea. He says, like, an unclean spirit lives in a man like a house. He leaves. When he comes back, he finds that the man has his life. It's all swept out. It's organized. It's empty. And it's garnished. It's decorated. It's all put together. But there's no one there to stop him from coming back in. Because he doesn't have Jesus. And he's saying, I have come to you, Pharisees. I have come to you, people of Galilee. Pharisees, you have your religious formality. People of Galilee, you've had your spiritual experience. But neither one of those saves you. What does? Only Jesus. And he says, you can have your life cleaned out, empty, organized, and decorated. Kind of picturing the Pharisees. But if I'm not there, it is judgment forever. He said, it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You can't stop sin. You can't stop evil. I want you to think, as we close, let's first be thankful and grateful this week. As we think about Thanksgiving, I want to bring it to a close with an application. I know we're a little longer than normal. I'll give it back to you some other time. I'll make Scott do it next week. But I want you to think about this. Jesus is the Savior. He came to save and redeem. We are sinners. Everyone needs the gospel. It is not religious and spiritual people that find salvation. It is only people that repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And if that has happened to you this morning, it's glorious. Be grateful. And if it is not, then do not reject him any longer. Do not turn aside his offer of salvation. The Holy Spirit has worked in your heart and told you who Jesus is. Submit and obey. And by faith and repentance through grace alone, come to him. Even now, in your mind, in your heart, come to Christ. But I also want us to sniff out this morning this attitude of the Pharisees in our own life. What what was the Pharisees' real hang-up with Jesus? 
he didn't do things the way that they thought he should do them. And so they were disinterested. Let me ask you this morning, I don't know how your life is going, but I know that in my life, when things, when Jesus doesn't do what I think that he should do, like the Pharisees, I become disinterested. I become apathetic. And I almost say, well, if you want me back, you're going to have to show me a sign. And Jesus says, that's evil. And how many of us are in a place in our lives where we say, Lord, I want to serve you, I want to do whatever, but I, I, you've got to show me something. Why? What has he not shown us already? In the same sign that he said he's going to give the Pharisees, I will die for you, and I'll rise again. That enough should motivate our hearts to see his mercy. Let's bow our heads this morning. We must finish and close. Again, a, a, a thick passage this morning, deep. And, and I'm not sure, it's one of those where I'm not sure how the Holy Spirit may be working in your life this morning. Maybe, maybe you've sensed a little bit of the Pharisees' attitude in your own heart and life. That Jesus isn't doing things the way you think he should do them, so you're frustrated with him. Jesus is calling you to repent. He's calling you to follow in submission. Maybe you're lost this morning. And when I say lost, I mean you have not come by faith and repentance through grace to Jesus and Jesus alone. You're counting on your own works, your own life. We've had people visiting. We have people that have been in and out these last few months. And maybe this morning, God's given you some clarity. And you come to Christ this morning. You can always, of course, come during an invitation or find myself or one of our church members, one of our staff members. We'd love to walk with you, teach you of Christ. Maybe you're a Christian this morning. You're thinking about someone in your life that you have just assumed is far too gone for the gospel to work. Jesus witnessed to the very men that would put him on the cross. May we give the gospel to all who will hear. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. You're just just a you're just a beautiful Savior. And we sometimes don't like that you don't do what we want and you don't do what we think we need and you don't do what we ask. But Lord, you have done what we need. You've given yourself. You've died for us. And Lord, forgive our frustration with the circumstances of our lives point our eyes to the glory of our eternity the grace that you've displayed let it sink in help our lives to soak and absorb your mercy and beauty as a savior who gives himself even for those who hate him who teaches the gospel to all and we pray this in Jesus name Stand if you would. We're going to sing a song we did a moment ago. Aren't you thankful this morning that Christ is enough, that he's sufficient? So if this morning...
you can declare that Jesus has worked in your heart and say, let's sing this with victory. Here at the altar or there at your seat, God's working in your heart. Submit to him. But as we sing, let's declare this, that nothing we have done merits this, but only Jesus' grace. Let's sing together.